In the last episode of Oppophile, we looked at the presidential campaign of 1988, which pitted the Democratic nominee Michael Dukakis, the governor of Massachusetts, against the Republican nominee, Vice President George H.W. Bush. We focused on one campaign issue, the Massachusetts Prison Furlough Program, and one individual, an inmate named William Horton. Here's Lee Atwater, the manager of the Bush campaign. Well, I, I, I do think America is a more dangerous place when you have a man like Dukakis, uh, who as governor had a uh, furlough program that allowed uh, convicted murderers with no chance of parole uh, to roam around on the weekends. And, and there's 85 of them still out uh, who, who escaped uh, during uh, this program. In this episode, we explore the legacy of the 1988 campaign. How did the backlash over the Horton ads shape Republican campaigns that followed? What lessons did Democrats take away from the Dukakis defeat? And how are opposition researchers in 2020 looking into the records of candidates on matters related to racial justice and policing? So I don't want to ask, what made them do this? They must be taken off the street. I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers. And that little girl was me. From Last 5% Media, I'm Joseph Radota, and this is Oppophile. I am Jack Corrigan. I was a deputy campaign manager for the Dukakis campaign in 1987-88. After the 1988 campaign, representatives of the Dukakis and Bush campaigns gathered on the campus of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to look back at the race. So that Institute of Politics organizes, after every presidential election, a campaign manager's conference where they invite both sides. People opine as to how brilliant or stupid they were. And they keep a transcript. Uh, and they publish the transcript. Now, I don't think they keep a very faithful transcript because, as I recall, looking at it later, that they edited some of the exchange that I had with Atwater. The transcripts of that conference were bound and released in book form, along with a warning, quote, the transcripts don't fully capture the bitterness of the exchanges. Bush campaign manager Lee Atwater said that when he first heard about the furlough issue, he didn't know who Horton was. I didn't know what race he was, Atwater said. Atwater said the full story, Horton's escape while out on furlough and the kidnapping and assault of a couple in Maryland, was sickening and defied common sense. But Atwater also conceded he was worried about raising the visibility of Horton out of a concern that the Bush campaign would be accused of racist tactics. Atwater was going out of his way to say that he had only mentioned Willie Horton's name once in the campaign. And um, I interrupted him and said, well, how many times did George Bush mention it? And he didn't answer, but said he was simply trying to make the point that he wasn't racist. And that, of course, implied that if Bush was mentioning the name, then Bush was racist, but he didn't bite on that. Atwater pushed back very hard. He said the Washington Post and many other publications wrote editorials saying it wasn't an attack based on race. He also said the Bush campaign's victory was in itself evidence that the campaign had not stooped to racist appeals. The American people are very fair-minded, Atwater said, they strongly rejected the notion of racism. If there were any racist politics in this campaign, it would have backfired on us, on the party. 
and there's this kind of strange thing that happens where there's a defensiveness on the part of the Bush campaign. Dr. Marsha Chatelain, professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University, who's written about race relations and the great migration of Southern blacks to Northern cities. And Leah Atwater says, oh, no, this is not racist. And then later he says, yes, it is. After the 88 campaign ended, Lee Atwater became chairman of the Republican National Committee. His dream job, he said. Among his goals as party chairman, build bridges between the GOP and black voters. In February 1989, a month after President George H.W. Bush took the oath of office, Atwater was named to the Board of Trustees of Howard University, an historically black university in Washington, D.C. According to Atwater's biographer John Brady, the problems began in the urban government and politics class of Professor Joseph McCormick. He was outraged by the appointment and asked his 16 students if they knew who Lee Atwater was. Four students said they'd heard of him. Professor McCormick decided to educate the rest, focusing in part on what he called Atwater's deployment of the Willie Horton strategy to win the election. Following the professor's lecture, a student member of the school newspaper wrote an editorial demanding Atwater be held accountable for, quote, the most racist strategy in a national campaign in the 20th century. On Friday, March 3rd, hundreds of Howard University students shut down a Charter Day ceremony and prevented comedian Bill Cosby from delivering a commencement address. The police were called and television cameras flocked to campus. Over the weekend, as many as a thousand students occupied the administration building. On Tuesday, the Washington Police Department arrived with 30 patrol cars. Atwater reached out to the Reverend Jesse Jackson to try to work something out with the students maybe a one-year term on the board where he could prove himself. But Jackson reported back that the only way to end the standoff was for Atwater to stand down. Lee resigned from the board of Howard University. And then Jesse Jackson went before the television cameras, and he said, quote, The signals that were sent in the Willie Horton ad were not so much about furloughs, but about race, and that Lee Atwater symbolized the worst of American politics. Congresswoman Pat Schroeder, a Democrat from Colorado, called Atwater, probably the most evil man in America. On March 5, 1990, Atwater collapsed at a breakfast fundraiser for Texas Senator Phil Graham. He was soon diagnosed with a particularly lethal form of brain cancer. A month before Atwater died, an article with his byline appeared in the February 1991 issue of Life magazine in an article titled, Lee Atwater's Last Campaign. Battling an inoperable brain tumor, the bad boy of Republican politics discovers the power of love. Lee wrote that he still believed in negative campaigning, but he preferred to call it comparative campaigning. He wrote, quote, negative makes it sound as if you're beating up on the guy for no reason, which is different from choosing platforms like the furlough program in Massachusetts upon which to make compelling comparisons between candidates. Yes, he mentioned the furlough program, so he wasn't apologizing for injecting the issue into the campaign. But he regretted saying he would, quote, strip the bark off the little bastard. That's a reference to Michael Dukakis, who is five foot eight, and, quote, make Willie Horton his running mate. I'm sorry for both statements, Atwater continued. The first for its naked cruelty, the second because it makes me sound racist, which I am not. Well, as you know, Atwater was hit with a terminal disease and where he kind of 
wanted to make amends to his credit, in my judgment. That's Michael Dukakis, the former governor of Massachusetts and the Democratic nominee for president in 1988. You know, he knew it was a racist thing. I mean, the whole business and, and kind of apologized for it. The guy who's working for it has never apologized, but that's neither here nor there. But I thought it was decent of him to do what he did, and, uh, and I appreciated that. Lee Atwater, the manager of George Bush's 1988 presidential campaign, later made chairman of the Republican National Committee, died this morning at the age of 40. A hard-driving political tactician... This is the exchange between David Gergen and syndicated columnist Mark Shields that evening on the PBS NewsHour. In his last year, when he was afflicted by cancer, there was a very different Lee Atwater that emerged. and I, It was one he was, he was seeking redemption. He apologized to a lot of people. He, he tried to square including his accounts. Dukakis. Including Dukakis. Uh, and I think Lee Atwater reminded us that abusive, cruel, negative politics don't simply hurt the target of them, they hurt the perpetrator. And he, he carried that pain with him. It is a cold, beautiful Washington morning, and we'll be bringing you coverage today of our nation's farewell to its 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush, as this week of commemoration... George H.W. Bush died in 2018 at the age of 94. His memorial service was held in Washington's National Cathedral, the first state funeral of the Trump era. George Herbert Walker Bush was America's last great soldier statesman, a 20th century founding father. That's John Meacham, the historian, speaking at Bush's memorial. In his 2015 biography of George H.W. Bush, Meacham wrote that politics was not a pure undertaking. If you want to amass power, he said, you have to be in a position of influence, and you're going to have to cut some corners. You're going to have moments of which you're not proud. He called out the Bush campaign for, quote, certain tropes that, looking back, may have crossed the line into, quote, fear-based politics. But as president, Meacham wrote, Bush did everything possible to do good. He wasn't a perfect president by any means, but he redeemed himself as president. And without that redemption, the Bush legacy today would be quite a different story. Republicans saw Atwater as a role model and uh, to some extent, Democrats did as well, albeit, you know, seeing him as uh, some kind of evil demon uh, that they have to uh, emulate in some way. This is Jack Pitney, professor of government at Claremont McKenna College and author of a book about the 1988 election. But it did accelerate the move toward opposition research. If you're a Democrat, you, you say to yourself, well, they're going to organize this, so we have to set up our war room. Dr. Pitney told me the 1988 campaign had an immediate short-term impact on both parties. The uh, takeaway is that opposition research works. But the blowback against Atwater over the Horton controversy was observed by other Republican candidates and political consultants, and it served as a warning. On uh, the Republican side, the, the long-term impact was to make some Republicans a little more cautious about issues involving race. Uh, Republicans were taken aback by the reaction to Atwater. Well, not all Republicans. I am your president of law and order and an ally of all peaceful protesters. But in recent days, our nation has been gripped by professional anarchists, Violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters, Antifa. 
and others. Without getting down in the gutter with the other guy, you have to be ready, I'm sorry to say, for what's going to be coming your way. And there will be attacks. And uh, you've got to try to anticipate those, and you've got to try to come up with a strategy to blunt them. That's Michael Dukakis looking back on 88 and sharing one of the two lessons Democrats at all levels learned from his defeat. The first lesson was be prepared for whatever oppo researchers on the other side might bring up and line up your own oppo research and fight back. This is Jack Corrigan, the deputy campaign manager for Dukakis. For politicians and political campaigns, I think it was don't just stand there, respond. That was a lesson Dukakis campaign chairman Bill Clinton later went on to apply in 1992 to his own campaign against Bush. Fight back. When alumnus of the Dukakis campaign, George Stephanopoulos, would go on to handle rapid response in the 1992 Clinton campaign and be one of two operatives immortalized in the movie War Room, the other being James Carville. Susan Estrich, campaign manager for Dukakis, Share with me the other lesson Democrats took away from the campaign. I went to the Kennedy School event after the campaign, where the winners and losers used to come together, more winners than losers. And I got a lot of points just for showing up. But somebody finally asked me, you know, if you could have done differently, or if you were in charge, what would you have done about Willie Horton? And I said, never let him out. (laughs) And the room burst out in laughter. Because Dick Caucus never said it. I mean, any program that let a guy out who would go on to rape and beat a woman is a program that was not doing its job to screen applicants and protect the public. The Horton controversy and the role it played in Michael Dukakis's defeat spurred elected officials all over the United States to toughen up their criminal justice records especially Democrats who feared they might be the next target of opposition researchers seeking to brand them as soft on crime. This is the Dukakis deputy campaign manager, Jack Corrigan. Well, I think as a policy matter, criminal justice policy swung towards harshness and punitive measures. I think you see a lot of uh, mandatory sentences enacted after that. Some of the policies that led to you know, what we now talk about as mass incarceration, a lot of state governments ended similar programs. State governments toughened their laws. Dr. Marsha Chatelain of Georgetown University. Well, one of the consequences of the Horton ad was it really confirmed to Democrats, as well as Republicans, about the importance of running on tough on crime In the next few years, a squad of Democratic candidates for Congress, Senate, governor's offices, the White House, would beef up their tough-on-crime credentials in order to avoid falling victim to the same attacks that took down Michael Dukakis. Those Democrats included a senator from Delaware named Joe Biden. When I was introduced by Horace, he said I was a Democratic crime specialist. Based on the last campaign, you didn't think there was any one of those things, did you? (laughs) You didn't think there could be a Democratic. You probably thought when he said Democratic crime specialist that I was Willie Horton's attorney. My name is Sonia Van Meter. I am the managing partner of Stanford Campaigns. We are an opposition research and consulting shop based in Austin, Texas. 
working for Democrats nationwide from top to bottom of the ballot. While I was working on this episode of Oppofile, Sonia Van Meter tweeted that Oppo researchers were digging into the records of politicians from the 1990s, focusing on issues related to crime and race. I reached out to her to get her take on how the current national reckoning over policing and racial equality is affecting the work of Oppo researchers in the 2020 campaign cycle. Well, the materials that we look up are very much the same as they've always been. You know, records that we can get from police departments um, and other, you know, publicly available sources, voting records, for example, these are the kind of things that we look at to make points about the candidates that we're either working for or against. So not much has changed in terms of the process. What has changed rather radically, especially in the last few months with with Black Lives Matter bringing so much attention to the issues of police brutality, is uh, the light in which previous votes and previous statements are now held. One of the things that Democrats had to fight very hard for was to be taken seriously as law and order candidates. And so anytime there was an opportunity to vote responsibly, they thought in a way that indicated, I am here for law and order, they would take advantage of that. The 1994 crime bills is an excellent example of that kind of voting. And now all of a sudden, you know, those kind of votes and statements pertaining to those kind of votes are being viewed in a wildly different way because the issue of police brutality is finally becoming a national issue. What this means in terms of Republican-Democrat relationships uh, right now, in terms of advantage, is is yet to be seen. But I think that uh, what we have seen for sure is Democrats having to defend law and order records that they used to once tout as a point of pride. And that's because the social winds are blowing in a very different direction right now. Those winds blew through Miami on June 27th of last year. And Joe Biden and nine of the other candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination gathered for the second of two primary debates. By far the most newsworthy moment in that debate was this exchange between California Senator Kamala Harris and former Vice President Joe Biden. We've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. A few weeks later, at a debate in Detroit, Senator Harris was on the receiving end of a similar attack from Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard. Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a quote false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but 
She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place. That A month earlier, the Republican opposition research super PAC, America Rising, posted to YouTube three and a half minutes of then-Senator Joe Biden speaking on the floor of the U.S. Senate. He was pushing what would become the 1994 crime bill. It doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. That's number one. There's a consensus on that. On May 25, 2020, a Minneapolis police officer killed George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man. On June 16th, the Trump War Room tweeted a segment of a C-SPAN recording from 1991 in which Joe Biden referred to the Daughters of the Confederacy like this. A organization made up of many fine people who continue to display the Confederate flag. And on June 22nd, Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale tweeted, quote, Biden once thanked segregationist Strom Thurmond for helping him pass crack cocaine laws targeting black Americans. And Parscale included this video of Joe Biden speaking in 1991. If you have a piece of crack cocaine no bigger than this quarter that I'm holding in my hand, one quarter of one dollar, we passed a law through the leadership of Senator Thurmond and myself and others, a law that says if you're caught with that, you go to jail for five years. You get no probation. You get nothing other than five years in jail. Judge doesn't have a choice. I asked Susan Estrich if she were running the Biden campaign today, what would she tell her oppo researchers to start working on? Everything. There is a limitless amount of negative stuff to use on Trump. The question is, how do you use it most effectively? The challenge in this election, I think, for opposition research on the Democratic side is not going to be finding bad things about Trump. You just have to pick up the newspaper every day and it's full of some outrageous and politic, insulting tweet. All right. You have to figure out how to present it, who presents it, and how you present it in such a way that you maintain Joe Biden's reputation as a good guy. The thing about Joe Biden is nobody hates Joe Biden, all right? People may not vote for him. They may not 
think he's the best in the world. But over the course of his career, he has not given anyone any reason to think he is not a decent guy. I asked the same question of Jack Pitney, and I just want to note that Dr. Pitney is one of a group of prominent Republicans in California who formed a committee under the auspices of the Lincoln Project to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. So um, in the context of the 2020 campaign, if you were doing opposition research for Trump you know, in this racially charged moment, what would you be looking for about Biden? Well, one of the things Trump could do uh, about Biden is... Uh, the issues that Kamala Harris raised, that is Biden's early statements, his initial skepticism about racial balance busing, his uh, cooperation with segregationists. And in the early 70s, there were still overt segregationists in the U.S. Senate. Not so much to uh, convert voters to Trump, but to reduce enthusiasm among African-American voters. If uh, African-American turnout is relatively low, that's a win for Trump. Curious to see how they would handle uh, Anita Hill. I think even his uh, most ardent supporters would uh, concede his handling of the Senate hearings was uh, not his most politically deft moment. Uh, and that would be another, another instance in which the purpose would not be to convert people to Trump, but to reduce enthusiasm for Biden. I think that would be the major approach of the uh, of the Trump campaign to, to make people raise questions about Biden saying, Man, maybe I shouldn't uh, risk getting sick by going to the polls this uh, November. In the next episode of Oppophile. The characters in my political thrillers are consultants who are brought in when people are in trouble. Dr. Dirt distorted his facts. No wonder if someone finally shut him up for good. Is opposition research really stranger than fiction? And this person was threatened within hours with devastating opposition research. One of the people that he had gone after, whose secrets he had revealed or possessed, had killed him. Join us for the next episode of Oppophile.